hi everyone, welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. This week we decided to split our mega episode about Indes into two episodes, so this is the second half. Joining me this week are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Kendra Brown, Stephen Cheney, Jess Finley, and TQ. Hope you enjoyed the show. Can I be radical? Sure. Does the sphere around require leaving the bind? Can it be a super tight sphere that you ride on the whole, the sword the whole time? I mean, I know that's radical as shit. I'm just throwing it out there. I haven't done it in person. I, I don't know how that works. I... I would have Sorry. to see it. If you do a baby sphere just over the head, I don't know. I'm just playing with a thought right now. I think you struggle to keep a bind through the entire action without any leaving at all, because otherwise you're kind of going to tangle up your hilt on their hilt, is my gut feeling. The, the problem or you're going to stay on the same side of the sword and it becomes more of a duplayer type action. But like, I'm just throwing it out to play. I'm not right? saying it's when wrong. When you find an exception, you have, to, you have to question whether or not we're interpreting it wrong. So I'm just throwing it out. Yeah. I would like to see a video of a, of a baby sphere that, that can do that, because that's interesting. But I can't, I can't envision it in my head. Yeah. Everyone go home and make a video. The problem with it that I have in mind is that when he is doing the sphere around, you know, when you get to this point, his sword's no longer available to, to bind on so how do you, how do you stay in a bind when he's like this? So I think the idea is that it's more of a, a very vertical, like the blade comes up and right. goes back down type like action. Like a, you know, a big umbre- like a umbrella type thing. Where like a cron. Keep talking. I'm going to hit Bob. I'm going to yeah. hit Bob. Keep going. I'm listening. Yeah. Like think think a little bit like a so you you start with your chair. Yeah. Your first chair, and then you come up to a like a cron sort of position, and then right, you can yeah. kind of still have some connection there, and then you come back down on the other side. But I, I'm not sure how the hands are going to get past the blade unless the parry is very kind of forwards. For our, our listeners who can't see, Jess has now moved a, a dummy in her training hall and is hitting it with a sword. He's in nice tight square house. So she's yeah. doing fair completely in front of herself where she's bringing the sword up mm-hmm. and back around in a sort of a circle over the person's head. So it's yeah. still landing horizontally, but it's not moving around horizontally. And it's the sword stays yeah. in front of her the whole time. If the person does that, then yes, you can stay in the bind. I'll, I will. I'll, I'll uh, be bold and make the statement. Yes, you can stay nice, in the bind. Yes. If the person does that. It's a highly specialized Tverhau, I think. Right. Is that how you teach the Tverhau, Jess? I do that tight Tverhau all the time, friend. Yeah. I, I, th- <laughs> I, I think it is a tight Tverhau. I do think. You have to leave the bind, especially you're changing sides of their sword. But I don't think it makes that much difference in from can, a fancy. Can you give Bob a sword so he can show us the counter? <laughs> Bob doesn't have arms. Oh, wait. Uh, maybe. Oh, that's right. All right. Oh, Jess has a solution to this problem. Um, well, fencing by the book. Uh, if the if there were a way to sort of ride their warehouse around, that would be cool. Oh, it's even better. There's, there's a, a, a little tripod stand with a clamp. Is he getting a sword now? Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure that wow. this will, will execute it to Fairhouse for us, though. Holy moly. That, that'll be a way. Everybody, yes. your coronavirus lockdown trainings have been incomplete. Yes. This is so cool. 
<laughs> so I guess while Jess has been it's setting this up, let's talk very quickly about the Dante couplet where it says that feeling, um, where it says that like not feeling makes you a buffoon and feeling makes you a master. And like, what's going on with this? What is this definition? I guess one part would be that there's a, there's a few kind of implicit statements at various points in Lichtenauer, which say that something is it, various points in the glosses more accurately, which say that something like describe different kinds of fencers. Um, and one of the ones is buffels who take their mastery from or take their skill from strength and who are described as not using fulin or whatever. My preference about this is that these are people who are like doing preset action combinations um, without actually bother to just going for eyes closed combination actions, basically. Um, and that's quite attractive to me as a, as a theory because it fits really well with something we see in non-Lichtenauer fencing sources, like in um, uh, the Kolner effect book and stuff, where you have a lot of these kind of set plays um, where it'll say, like, this is the technique called the Iron Gate. Do these four cuts together. Um, you know, you do like this, 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 this. And that's an Iron Gate, right? So this idea of there being an approach to fencing based on knowing combination moves that are executed just as a batch and will probably the first parts will create should create the second action but there's no kind of description of a reaction cycle going on you just do your thing and the action should work um, in this very eyes closed way and that's kind of one it's something which works better the faster and stronger you are um, which goes quite nicely with the whole buffoons are people who like fighting with their strength and two it's something which works better uh which doesn't depend on actually feeling and reacting to what your opponent is doing you're just executing your plan straight out i was just gonna say it's a faster way of fencing too you execute your cuts faster when you don't have to worry about whether it's the right thing to do or not so the interesting thing to me there is that Dork Vexel is described as the action that a buffalo is going to do. And certainly a lot of times when I see it used in like a competitive setting, it's a person who's purely eyes closed. They don't care what their opponent's doing. They went in with a plan to change through. But it's also now listed as a thing you can do in Des. So it's sort of on both sides of this divide. Buffaloes change through and so do masters. So what's the difference between how they do it? T, I can't hear you. Eyes open and eyes closed actions is a term that comes from uh, I I have from Zbigniew Tchaikovsky, whose name I've mangled. Apologies to Poland. <laughs> and like, it's not intrinsic to a particular action that it ca has to be done one way or the other, but rather there are two ways of approaching the way you're going to do a thing. So like, if I throw a cut, and my plan is that I'm going to throw my cut forward and then snap my hands around and cut my chair out. Right? That's an eyes closed action. Um, I'm just going to do these two things no matter what. If you don't parry, I'm still going to whip it around and do the chair how and like slam it into your sword on the second action. Whereas the eyes open version is that I throw my cut and when I see you come to parry, I snap it around and I do my chair how. And this is eyes open. It's more, and you're you're basically trading off speed, which Steve just alluded to, where the eyes closed version is going to give me the fastest possible second chair how I can do because I have no need to process or react to what's going on. Um, I can take my entire recognition cycle and throw it away. And that's time which I can be spending just doing the cut. Or I can try and react to what's happening. And then I'm slowing down my speed, but I'm increasing my kind of the robustness of my action. Um, if you do something that I didn't plan on, I'm I maybe have a chance of reacting to it and doing something to abort my plan instead of just smashing my sword into the parry that you 
had already put up because you mm. realized it was a feint. So that's your that's your trade-off. But it's not intrinsic to the action. Rather, it's a way you can execute the action. Cool. Jess, what were the, the conclusions of your little experiment? Oh, with the with the sphere? I don't yeah. the the only trick would be is 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 how that parry is coming that initial parry is coming in, right? How the setup for the counter, right? Um, yeah. and whether or not it would trigger me to do a baby sphere, which now I'm thinking through. But if 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 I had uh here's an example where this does come up where people try to do a duplier from their sphere yeah. uh, with eyes closed as you guys are talking. Because some people yeah. really like to, right? Without yeah. being present. And so yeah. that actually might be a way to approach what we're talking about here, whether or not that's that part of the gloss. I don't know. I'd have to spend a lot more time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That would that would be good against a duplier. That, that, that would... That'll be more likely to be, you know, a, that smaller type of square around too. I just, I, I wanted to just say one more thing about eyes open and eyes closed. So we can kind of, you know, you can conclude in a way fr from this that Lichtenauer prefers, or like the Glossators or whoever wrote this prefers eyes opened, I'm making air quotes right now, eyes opened to eyes closed fencing. But it's also important to note that there are techniques that we have been given that are eyes closed. So the inverter. Yeah, if you got to do it, you got to do it. Failure. Yeah. And I also want to make a maybe. Uh, I want to make a distinction between different types of eyes open, because so like the like a full a, a truly eyes open technique is one where. You're going into the technique and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So say you're going to do like a feint and then depending on how they move, you're going to make a, a different attack from there. What most of the things are that we're given in the gloss are you do an attack that is meant to hit. And if they parry, then you, you know, move on to your decision tree, which is not a fully eyes open technique it's it's a semi eyes open it's a it's a change of intention like so I squinted <laughs> exactly. yeah so i think there are a couple of uh of of, of fully eyes open thing uh spreck fenster comes to mind where you cut and put your point in front of their face and then depending on what they do you uh do a different thing but most of the time you're going for a real attack or a real counterattack or whatever. And mm. if they parry, then you work from there, which is, I think, you know, involves maybe even more improvisation than a fully eyes open attack. So now does this idea include things that are intended as provocations but leave you an attack option if they don't take the bait? Or would you consider that to be fully eyes open? Like if I'm gonna cut the long point and then stab you immediately, like a Zorn type action. If you don't if you don't parry my long point, um, I think it would de depend on the specific situation. But yes, that would be well. I don't know because there's a main 
thing, you intend to stab them in the face. I don't know. You have to ask oh, somebody. Sorry, so I guess it's, this is not an important distinction to hash out right now. Never mind. Yeah. But maybe another podcast. But anyway, so I guess my point with, with that, with, with those small distinctions are that I think what uh, Leech Nauer likes or what the Glossators are getting at is they like improvisation. They like they like a fencer to have to to be able to do the right thing when things have gone wrong. You know, when everything if everything's gone perfect, then you don't need any of this. You don't need indes because you just hit the person right away. But if something goes wrong, then how do you react to that? Like what's your you know, do you fall apart? Do you do something automatically? Or can you, you know, suss out the correct response and do it immediately. So this raises a, a question to me, actually, that I've pondered periodically, which is the extent uh, most of these actions that are described as indes don't work if you have to stop and think about it. Like the, the opportunity is too small for a whole lot of conscious thought there. So where's the boundary between having trained this response so much that as soon as you get to a certain bind, you know what to do when you get to the opening even though you're not really consciously processing it versus being a buffle and just executing your technique. So for me, the difference... Oh, good <laughs> That's not the worst <laughs> answer. Um, but for me, the difference would come down to the, like, is a difference between a reflexive action that you haven't planned for and a planned action that you are doing regardless of what happened. Um, and I'm going to make a non-fencing analogy because it seems like it, I can do it more easily, right? Imagine you're like facing, um, you've got a, you're, you're like facing a wall. You've got a friend at the other side of the room who's going to throw a ball uh, across the room, and they're going to throw it to your left side or your right side, and you're going to turn around. They'll throw it the moment you like as you're turning around, and you have to grab it, right? And there's two ways you could approach because you have to like do this in a super tight reaction time. You don't really have time to fully process what's going on, and you either have two ways to approach it. One is you can pre-decide which which side you're going to try and grab. You know, I'll be like, I'm going to try and grab it on the right. And if it comes to the right, I'm going to, my hand's going to be in the right place. And I'm going to grab it. And if it goes to the left, I'm going to miss. It sucks to be me. Um, and that's the buffalo approach. Um, and then the other one is that you can like be so good at processing and reacting to the flow of the ball you see, as you see it starting in the air, that the moment you turn around, you're starting to recognize a move in the correct direction. And that's the like the mastery version. And they might look kind of similar, but in principle, the one should be more robust to things happening the way you don't expect them. The flip side is it's much harder to get that good. <laughs> is it is it time to talk about uh, Zen and no mind? If you want to, it's always time. <laughs> Let's talk about tennis. Tennis. Okay. But but we haven't talked about the one of the seven techniques listed that clearly can't have blade contact, which is ring and mitt. Yeah? That's a good point. Um, although arguably, ring and has body contact instead, which is where you're getting your full in from. I guess that's not defined earlier in the section. But there's still physical right. contact going on? Well, what I learned from so... called is that wrestling is all about sword fighting, so... <laughs> so the thing that I find fascinating about that is because the other place where we have an extensive right up besides our, our main glosses of Voronok and quote-unquote Indes 
is Ott's prologue, right? So he tells us mm -hmm. what kind of wrestler to wrestle in the boar, who to wrestle in the knock, and who to ring and mitt. He never uses Zendes. He says ring and mitt in between vor and knock. So ring and mitt. What's that? I, I think that in our list of eight things, it specifically is ring as mitt, isn't it? Yes. Ring as mitt. Yes, exactly. So, so I don't think that's an accident. I think that's very much on purpose and, and attention should be paid to that. Um, because what he's really saying is when someone durchlaufens, counter wrestle them, drop your sword and get some stuff done. Right? Um, that is what Ring and Mitt is. And, and Ring and Mitt lives um, against a wrestler in Ott's, in Ott's formulation, is against a wrestler who is equal to you, and it requires skill as opposed to strength or quickness. It requires skill. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap with what we're talking about. Um, so if people haven't, if people are, are digging into this part of the gloss and they haven't looked at Ott's prologue, I think that's um, a crucial moment, even if you don't read anything else Ott wrote. <laughs> so if nice you know, taking, that, taking that into our idea of you know sword fueling with indus if that is the case and you're countering someone who's uh you then you need to notice that you're now in a wrestling match and not in a sword fight anymore and that's maybe where your indus or you know part of your indus can come in is there's no more blade contact, and now I have to switch to wrestling, and then wrestle with so I can counter them. I don't know. Is that is that totally? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think so. Like, if you're looking for if you're looking for a a pictural um, image of of ring and mitt, like you can look to you know Cal's wrestling at the swords which is literally the same as his wrestling with nothing, right? Because they've both dropped their swords. Um, so, so, you know, but, but this, the, the ring and mitt idea um, is, is for all of our questions of, um, is this within time or space or whatever? I think, I think maybe it should be considered that it is, it is the space where, where a different kind of, how do I want to say this? A different kind of counter is happening. And we can use a lot of modern fencing terms to like dig into what we might say about that, which is outside my expertise. But because you can counter in the knock, we know that, we're told that. But it, 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 if you're looking at the wrestling version, it seems to be that in some ways, Ring and Mitt is waiting for something to happen and then countering it as it's occurring, as opposed to after it has happened. Is that, is that, you guys are oh, all looking sense. at, looking, looking dour. <laughs> oh, that makes sense, yeah. I, uh, I think I get it. <laughs> I okay. think it's less looking dour and more concentrating. Yeah. Yeah. So should I uh, 
just try to quickly get through my um, Eastern stuff. Yep, go for it, Steve. Yeah. We also need to go over what the lab says, by the way. Okay, yep. so the the idea that I had for this, and I always kind of like uh, thought of of Indes as being something like the uh, the 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 no mind. I'm using air quotes again. Idea from mm. uh, from like Eastern fencing or Eastern philosophy. And the idea is that, you know, when, whenever you're doing any activity, um, it's best to be uh, in the zone, which basically means that you're not consciously, sorry, zoned out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not consciously making decisions in your mind. You're not, you're not consciously choosing each movement that you make, but you're kind of allowing your body to like make decisions on, on its own. And the result is you get much faster movement and uh, more correct movement because you're kind of not getting in the way of your, your body knows how to do all this stuff and your mind can get in the way of that. So if you can quiet your mind and allow your body to work, then you'll get better results. And this in the, so actually, from from the list, I kind of just uh, thought of this yesterday because Jess, you, you posted the the list that was reworded, and it was reworded um, by saying instead of like Indus duplicates, you duplicate Indus, um, you mutate Indus, and the that that's you know. A, uh, it's an interesting way to look at it, but it's not how it's presented. It's presented as Indes duplicates. So it's not you who are who are doing the duplarin. It's Indes who's doing the duplarin. So I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of a wild theory, but maybe it implies that you you the person who's fencing don't get in the way of Indes. Allow Indes to do its job. You know, go into the bind, feel. And then allow your body to do, because you've trained so well, you've trained so diligently, all of the correct responses. I'll just allow your body to do what it has to do in order to, uh, you know, do do the, the right way thing. The, the way the the gloss has it, it almost seems like so you get into a bind, and then you think about the word indes, which obviously we don't have time for but it's also not saying get into the bind and then think about whether they're hard or they're soft right yeah think about the word indes transfer your mind to indes mm -hmm. mode to let it do its thing and then indes does what your heart desires at the very end as this is a little bit what i was trying to get at with this idea of like transition of direction of movement like there isn't a you know, if I if I have a, a bind, if you know, we we whatever, we end up in a bind somehow. Instead of trying to like consciously decide which opening is closest and which a, which form of movement cut thrust or slice is the most efficient way to get to it, you sort of you move in what seems to be the most natural and direct way to the opening you can get to most easily. And that might be by cutting behind the sword, duplarin, it might be by taking your point lower with like creek type actions it might be with something else but it's not so much about like consciously feeling what the pressure is and then picking a particular type of movement but rather trying to move the most fluidly 
I think it's the Sydney Sabre blog, which is, you know, so good we won't shut up about it. <laughs> but it's got, it's got a really nice description. I think it's the best description of fencing being a fencer that I've ever seen, where it's just like, that's just a shape moving up and down the piece in front of you. You, you have no like conscious idea of what's going on. And then in Sabre, you have to sort of make the, the instinctive decisions around priority. But yeah, like the these very rough, these kind of very rough shapes. But like the way I'm moving will, sh- even if the bind is physically the same, the way I was already moving into it will shape the most natural way to move out of it. The way that like my gear is restricting me today, or the the way that you're some precise detail of the way you're pressing on my sword, which I can't even necessarily put into words, are all going to shape the the way that my sword can move. And if I try to consciously process all of that, it's going to be super slow. But if I can, like, when I can let that stuff just happen, it can become fast enough to actually use under pressure. Yeah, and this is like, you know, this is th- this is just this is what happens when people do things at a high level, whether they know it or not, or whether they're trying to do it or not. And this is like, you know, any you know Japanese sword arts. This is going to be like the basis of you're trying to work towards the the no mind scenario because you know they have Japan has you know his, a history of like Zen Buddhist philosophy where this is like a main tenant. But yeah, may, maybe just maybe this is uh, their little like the Glossator's little version of it. Oh, but um, so. Bearing that, in, oh no, let's talk about Kendra's first. Kendra, uh, do you want to talk about the Latin translation? Or the Latin translations, plural, potentially? Yeah. Or lack thereof, maybe? Right, so when I talked about Meyer's Latin word intus earlier, that was Joachim Meyer, not Paulus Hector Meyer, who's got a whole other right. thing going on. Um, rather than try to explain what's going on first, I'm just going to read this to you guys. This is the first bit of the Indes Gloss. Uh, I recommend following along on your own translation. Um, You'll hear what's going weirdly, I suspect. A caution to any who perceive whether the opponent would hold his sword strongly or not. Among the gestures of the longer sword, it is the most excellent of all. Perceive whether the enemy would hold the sword strongly or weakly. Secondly, continuous strikes against the opponent to make it very quick, you should employ. And if a master wants to consider any of these arts and has not studied the action in the preceding manner, and then he boasts worthlessly about comprehending athletics, because the two have to be learned, first of all. See, I see the face you're making. That's Is how the I guy feel about it. who's boasting about athletics the buffalo? The buffalo? He must be, except in this case, he's a master who boasts worthlessly because he doesn't actually he, understand. In the shield, a couple of the glosses say that buffles are people who take their mastery from. Like, I think it's, in general, important to distinguish between mastery of Lichtenauer's art, however you want to define that, which like is very connected to Indes, or is, is presented as being very connected to Indes in sections like this one, and mastery in general which might just mean being a good fencer or being a licensed teacher of fencing or something, and seems to be a much more like... There are more ways that people could be monsters. Um, just Lichtenauer thinks that a bunch of them suck. 
or Lichtenauer Glossators think of a bunch of them suck. So what I notice here is that there's no mention of Indes. That's a good observation. Am I picking up on that right? Um, it seems that the person who translated this gloss into Latin noped out real hard <laughs> on the Indes. There are places in the gloss where he thinks something needs extra explanation. So he'll throw in a paraphrase instead of using a technical term. Or places where he says, we Germans call this a blah, blah. As if the name isn't going to make any sense. And you need to know, like, people made up this name, but here's what it means. But the end is, is the only thing I'm aware of. But of course, I haven't read the German. The most obvious case where just so gone it's like more than gone it's weirder than that here there's a couple places where he says it and maybe that's where indes should be but also some of the phrases are out of order and usually in parts of the gloss where the german uses indes it has that quality of phrases out of order without any mysterious it It'll just be the technique is going along, and then things are out of order, and then they're back. It's also interesting that so the sort of technical term that comes up here is continuous strikes, which is the term that this translator uses for Krieg. Okay. And usually it only appears when the German has Krieg, except for here, where I guess he thought that was a more useful term to his readers than whatever the hell Indes means. Yeah. Well, the in the the paragraph, uh, one of the paragraphs here, it has the same idea of like working to the nearest opening, which is most associated with Krieg in German. So that might be the specific thing or a specific reason he chose to reuse the phrasing, despite the uh, despite the lack of the word Krieg. Hmm. Maybe he was right to not translate Indes. Maybe he was trying to save everybody a ton of headaches. Maybe by the time of Paul Sectomir, fencers didn't understand Indes anymore. They'd lost it and they just threw out combinations of cuts. I'm trolling here. Don't take me too seriously. So on a more serious note, I think that there's nothing like we often or a, it's often described in Hema, the Hema world that this is like German longsword in a way that sort of implies that this is the way people fence with longswords in Germany, and that definitely isn't true. You know, we have other sources which are not connected to this stuff, um, which don't express these tactical ideas, um, don't express, don't use these strategy terms, that sort of thing. So there are probably lots of fencers, almost certainly lots of fencers in Germany, especially around early gloss times, who had no idea what this crazy what these crazy people were going on about with their like indes fool and stuff except maybe in a very kind of vague oh yeah I, like you can feel when someone shoves on your sword that's the thing you can feel when you're fencing so here's here's a question then to to sort of wrap up how important is indes uh, as modern people that fence lishenhauer <laughs> in our modern game. How important is Indes? Well, I guess I'll go. The way that, that I kind of apply Indes is by kind of favoring the idea that we should 
instead of doing like instead of focusing on more closed eyes techniques we should try to get good at like the decision type where you make where you improvise and make a good decision in the middle of your fencing so that's kind of how it manifests itself in in my fencing game and how i try to show people fencing yeah i buy that i think uh I think it's definitely possible to fence well or to be successful in fencing without using it, without paying particular attention to a lot of these. I've got to say, a pretty low percentage techniques. Do play in a meter and. But on the other hand, Dirk Vexel is like the highest percentage technique in the whole gloss, practically. So. Yeah, but a lot of people do it bad. Keep in mind that he never says that the buffalo is unskilled or yeah, not true. a good fencer. Right. 3227A says that, but the RDL glasses don't really even imply that. He's a fencer who's seeking mastery. He's a fencer who, I mean, what I often tell people is you don't need to do a shield how to beat a peasant. Peasants are kind of easy to beat. A shield how is a very specialized technique. That defeats someone who's probably doing something fairly particular. Um, so the idea that a buffalo is just some loser is probably misinterpreting the gloss. Like like always, I'm brought back to the other masters section that um, came alongside Ringick, where it gives a whole bunch of sort of high percentage closed eyes eyed attacks. So you've got the one that looks a little bit like a a baker popping bread in the oven because they're, they're throwing out uh, thrusts. You've got the one that looks a bit like using a garden hoe because you're cutting up and down. Those kind of ones. And it yeah. really seems like the the opposite, the antithesis to this Lishenhauer Indes way of fencing. So, like, this is a... It's a thing you see in other martial arts, combat sports, whatever term you want to use, I guess. Like, a really common way you see people learn fighting skills is that they'll learn some fundamental moves like you know how to throw a punch or you know like how to throw a couple of different punches and a kick and maybe like one throw or something and they'll learn some cool combinations that are like good high percentage combinations like you know jab cross um or uh, throw a throw a punch high up and then as they come up to parry shoot in for a double leg takedown or whatever and you you can get pretty far by knowing a few good fundamental moves and being good at them and knowing a few good combinations and being good at them and not really having any much deeper strategy but just executing the stuff you know really well and really aggressively but that falls apart very badly when you run into somebody who can break it i'm reminded of leonard carpentier who's a friend of several of ours um from paris Surprisingly good fencer. And he, at Turnhout 2019, took apart uh, Frederico Dallolio in the eliminations. Uh, beat him 7-3. It was a really remarkable match to watch. And what was pretty obvious from watching it was that Federico basically had some combinations of actions he was very good at and was very quick and powerful at executing, but couldn't, under the pressure Leonard put him under, adapt those actions to deal with the counters he'd been faced with he couldn't like adjust those actions and so he just got wiped pretty much and that kind of being good at 
just doing combinations will get you a long way, especially against people who aren't amazing fencers or people who aren't super physical. But it will fall it can fall apart really badly against somebody who can either either knows a thing that neutralizes your thing just by luck, or can recognize what your thing's weaknesses are in the middle of your bout and prepare something that defeats it. And at that point you need to be able to make something else happen or you're going to lose. And that's kind of where the but the tr the flip side is you get better faster by just learning closed dice combinations. Like you can win stuff very quickly with that. So it depends what you want to do. Do you want to deeply understand an art of fencing? Then this thing is important and learning to improvise and adapt and mix new stuff in uh, in the moment to adapt to what's actually happening becomes is like very critical to this art. If you just want to win tournament matches, maybe it's less important and learning like cut thrust and the Dirk on play will take you a pretty long way, to be honest. I want to I want to mention um FA 2.0 also since you're basically talking about this this type of uh, you know very few move pedagogy um, is that the right word probably not pedagogy yeah okay so that that's kind of the basis of of the uh, the paradigm laid out in FA 2.0 is you have your area of excellence which involves a few moves that you do very well and you try to steer steer the match into the cases where you can use those moves. However, what um, what's the author's name again? Johan Harmenberg. Harmenberg, yeah. What Harmenberg is is careful to point out is that you shouldn't start off fencing like this. You should start off by learning a a wide corpus of uh, classical techniques, so that yeah. you a know how to deal with like weird situations and B can uh, you can make an educated decision on what you want your area of excellence to be. So, yeah, from what I, I'm just going to misrepresent him now from what I can remember of the book. It's pretty much moving a match into your area of excellence, relying on your two few top moves. That's something for the, the Olympic point, the, the final matches. For the for the pools for your beginning matches, where you're probably if you're going to the Olympics, you're already probably better than most of your opponents. You don't need to do all that. You just fence normally and have fun. Yeah. Well, part of I mean, part of the paradigm is hiding your area of excellence from your most dangerous competitors, so they don't know what's coming. And the other thing, which I think is worth noting, if we're talking about Epe. 2.0 is that the some of the ways he wins he describes and so on are based on recognizing and specifically breaking somebody's area of excellence and the ability to adapt under pressure is the way you can counter that happening it might not be your core action but sometimes being able to do something which isn't your core action like um you know recognizing that your your standards combination of actions or your your normal setups aren't working on this opponent and adapt to something else um is going to be the difference between winning and losing and that I, can I become very important in practice a really fun bit of the modern historical fencing combat sport that we do for me and the reason that i'm probably addicted to it is that we don't have a set rule set so i can go to a or I used to be able to before the plague times happened. 
go to one scene and there'll be a, a combination that works very effectively there. And then if I say went to Turnhow, which has its softish right of way system, and tried my boring old Twercopter, I'd fall flat on my ass because um, in that context, uh, there is, the optimal strategy changes. And that's when you need to start displaying real real mastery of the art and self-awareness to be able to go, hang on a second, I need to rebuild a strategy on the fly. And I don't know if anybody else here has been watching The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. It's all about chess. But yes. I'm, I'm reminded of Bobby Fischer, who's supposedly the best chess player ever. And later on in his life, after he got sort of kicked out of the American chess scene for playing against the wrong people, he started only playing chess that begins with a randomized board position. Because none of this just memorizing your Sicilian defense or whatever and memorizing the board, he was more interested in having to, to think up strategies on the fly. Yeah, Fisher random chess. Um, the I was talking about this a bit on the on a forum somewhere, um, and I mentioned like the idea of like it's good to have a, or it can be useful to have a wide base of techniques and adaptability because that gives you flexibility in your fencing brain, the ability to like recognize new situations and make decisions on the fly when something weird is happening, even if it's not something you've ever actually encountered before. Whereas when you have a, a very tight tight system that's built on like a, a single core, like little set of actions. And you don't really have it. You kind of don't really need a decision-making series, like concept anymore. You just do, do this thing every time. And that will, f that can fall apart very badly. If anything, it becomes very brittle. Basically it's very effective when it's working and it breaks very fast when it isn't. And I think that the, one of the core select in our approach is like this, this underlying adaptability and flexibility that you're supposed to be able to react to and address weird things happening, even if they aren't necessarily the things you've prepared for, by having this more flexible paradigm for thinking about fencing. And so from that perspective, it's important, it's important stuff to include, even if you don't necessarily use it all the time, depending on who you're fencing. I won't use all of these actions all the time. Just making them happen when it's not the right time is definitely not applying in but recognizing what's actually going on in the battle and reacting to that instead of your preconceived plans is and does would be my summary of how it goes in practice. All right. I think now is probably a good time to wrap up. Does anybody have anything else to add before we do? Nope. Beautiful silence. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Mike Smorge, and joining me this week have been a mega panel of Jess Finley, Johanna Hopfgardner, Kendra Brown, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you very much for listening. Woo. You did it, guys. Did it. That was one hour, 40 minutes. That's amazing. Wow. I did have like super wild theories, but I was not going to drag out this episode any longer. <laughs>